Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly that uh, support for today's show comes from Google Play. Did you know that you can now download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play? It's true. Hands-free listening using Google Assistant or Chromecast. You can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte, no subscription necessary. There's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. All kinds of amazing books up on the Google Play Store that you can listen to, including King Zeno by our guest today, Nat Rich. So go check it out. For a limited time, you'll get 10 bucks off your first book by visiting g.co slash play slash longform. That's g.co slash play slash longform. Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. Here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with two co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hey, guys. It's good to sort of be with you. Yeah, you are uh, still physically on sabbatical, but I feel emotionally you are here with us, Evan. I'm right there in a room, in the room with you. It sounds like there's a baby in the room. There is a baby in the room. Mm-hmm. Unnet, we we won't disclose what baby it is. Mystery baby. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, the, sh- the show has acquired a baby. Max, who is on the show this week? Uh, this week on the show is uh, Nat Rich, Nathaniel Rich, who has been on the program before. Uh, but last week he published a story in the New York Times Magazine. Uh, a 30,000 word piece called Losing Earth. It was literally the entire magazine. And uh, it was a project he worked on for two years. It's like a history of the climate change movement from 1979 to 1989. Uh, It's an incredible story. And he was in town. He lives in New Orleans, but he was in town for like 48 hours to uh, be there when it launched. And he took a few of those hours and came to the studio and uh, thought about it out loud with me, which was uh, a real pleasure. I don't think this may be the longest article that has ever been discussed on this show. Is that right? I don't know. I, it feels like it's got to be up there, but um, it was certainly like we do this from time to time where I feel like we just have someone come on and really just like think through one project. Yeah. And uh, it was fun to do that right after it had come out. It was a little like um, I had a conversation with Brian Reed like the day after S Town came out. And uh, it was a similar kind of thing where just like he had been so deep in it for such a long time uh, that it's fun to talk about. Evan, have you been doing any reading this summer? As a matter of fact, I have, Aaron. And some of my reading I have sourced to the curation of Shea Serrano from the Decatur Book Festival, which I'm not able to attend this year. But you don't have to attend because you can go find out what they're reading and who's going and you can read those books yourself. Well, thanks to MailChimp uh, for supporting the show and bringing those authors out. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you are uh, looking for a book, something to read, go check out readthissummer.com. All kinds of great options up there. Uh, here is Max with Nat Rich. Because we don't have to worry about anything else. No. because uh, Just in the immediate future. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, right? That's all that's all that's sitting out there. Yeah. It's just like what's gonna happen to me yeah, personally, myself. Ourself as long as we pr- protect our self interest. Yeah. Our our short term self interest yeah. seems like the thing to focus on. Yeah. It's I mean we've always done it that way. Why change? <laughs>
Hey, now tell me about uh, tell me about this story. I have lots of questions about the story, but I'd like to just start with its origins. Like, how how do you end up taking over the entire New York Times magazine? How's that happen? They asked me if it was something that I would be interested in doing, and I said yes. Uh, and then it wasn't a story you pitched. Well, so the Times has a partnership with the Pulitzer Center, and the first product of this partnership was. Fractured Lands, which was this entire issue-long article by Scott Anderson about the Middle East. The Poulter Center helps fund it, and they also, after publication, sort of chop it up into different sections and create course syllabi and have a whole educational program and apparatus um, through their network, which is pretty substantial, and so it has a longer life also than a normal magazine piece. And they wanted to do another one, and they wanted to do something about climate change. And so the editors asked me if I was interested in doing something, and I said, of course. And we tried to figure out a way to take on the issue in an original manner. And so we came upon the idea of doing a historical piece running 10 years from 1979 to 1989, the significance of those years being that by 1979, there is scientific consensus about the fundamental science of climate change. There is the beginning of an effort to turn the science into policy throughout the decade. It's not a partisan issue. There are prominent Republicans, both in different administrations as well as in Congress, who are pushing for major climate policy. And industry, perhaps most significantly, hasn't closed ranks and turned towards disinformation campaigns, bribing scientists and politicians and an entire political party, and adopting the tactics of the tobacco industry and hiring the same PR firms to activate them. And, and over the course of the decade, you move from you know, the original discovery of the issue, basically, within policy circles, to the brink of a solution, right. um, which is a global climate treaty with binding emission targets. And then it falls apart. And as soon as it falls apart, the screw turns and we're stuck in this paralysis that we've been stuck in ever since. The very short version of your very in-depth article is basically like capturing this one brief moment where in hindsight, we were way closer than we've ever been been since. That's a, a much better way of putting it than I just did. <laughs> well, I, I have lots of questions about the piece, but I also just, I want to talk about like climate change reporting unto itself for a second. So that's where you guys landed, but what were the other ideas that you kicked around? <sighs> that's a really good question. Um, it's about two years ago. Um, been working on this for two years? Yeah. I had a few different ideas. I mean, I think I had one idea about <laughs> there I won't be able to remember it'll sound really stupid but there was an idea about the world's largest living organism which is a tree but it it looks like a forest but it all shares the same root system and I had a vague idea that that could be a 40,000 word piece <laughs> um and I don't honestly remember it's been I, I've been working so long on this project that it's I'd have to go back to my early notes let me give you another version of yeah. that question so it has, to me, been this like curious and perplexing thing for years that this issue, which can like fairly be described as the biggest thing facing us, is kind of boring. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and the coverage of it is boring. Uh huh. And I've talked about it before on the show. Like, I don't. I haven't been able to figure out how to make it unboring, or another word for that is interesting. Yeah. And. I wonder how when you guys sat around and you're like, okay, so we got this money. We can write a 40,000 word piece, 30,000 word piece about climate change. Like, what's the conversation like with you and your editors about how to make that interesting? I agree with your characterization of so much of this writing. Um, as with any subject, there are cliches that become ingrained and the struggle from a pure writing perspective I and mean, forget about the political side of the issue is to try to yeah, imagine it anew. And, and and I feel there's a huge opportunity with climate change because for exactly what you're suggesting, it's not only we talk a lot about the political issue, the economics of it, the industry story and the scientific story, but we don't talk about the human story. And I would 
say that not only is it a big human story, but it is the human story. Yeah. And in, in not only in the sense of the stakes that we're talking about the fate of our civilization, but also the, the story of our civilization since the Industrial Revolution has been that our quality of life has increased in lockstep with our usage of energy. Whether you're talking about longevity, you know, health outcomes, food production, intelligence, any, anything you name. And for all of our history since then, we've our energy has come from fossil fuels. And so with every step of the ladder that we've advanced, um, we're borrowing from our future. And I don't think we've reckoned with that in a serious way, which is not to discount the importance of all these other stories, but I think there's a larger story to tell and and a moral story to tell. And I don't think that's been done in a serious way for the general public. Yeah, I mean, one exception to that, I think, is that David Wallace Wells' New York Magazine piece from last year, which in my opinion was great, but also just was able to break through that thing, whatever that like mental block is that people have with engaging with this thing. And it was interesting reading your story because so much of what those folks were trying to do was figure out like how to tell the story and their challenges feel to me at least like really similar to your challenges, like really their challenges of telling the story and getting people to like wrap their heads around it feel so similar to me to the ones facing journalists trying to write about it. Like there's all these like empty congressional hearings where you know these guys are in there being like, we are fucked. <laughs> all of, everybody. Yeah, and the cameraman disassembles his camera and walks out of the room. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's true. I mean, there's they're strategizing the whole time and there's a key moment where Hansen, James Hansen, the NASA scientist, says to Rafe Pomerantz, the activist, this is no good holding hearings in the middle of the winter. <laughs> Uh, we need to hold them in the summer. You yeah. know? So there's already this thought of what's the PR approach? How do you get people interested in this? But that gets into this larger question because there's this premise that you see you know, from that period on and, and certainly through today that the only, only way people are going to get interested in this story is if it affects their own self-interest. And the problem with the story is that it's the dangers are too far off. But if we can make it seem immediate, then we can move people to act. And I think there's that's rational, but it's also a very um, miserly view of human nature that unless the flood is at our door uh, and unless our crops have burned off, we don't care. And I, we don't talk about other social issues in that way. We don't talk about race in that way. I mean, you don't hear a lot of I mean, sure, you might hear some, but you don't hear a lot of white people saying, I don't care about racism because I'm white. And so it's the sense of moral uh, engagement in it is lacking. And I don't, you know, and, and so I wanted to try to understand why don't we talk about climate change in this way? What's your theory? Well, I guess I would say that there's a failure of imagination. There's a failure of articulation of a kind of moral philosophy of, of I mean this maybe sounds a little grand but I, I don't think anyone has, has successfully We're talking about the fate of the world yeah you know, articul- grand is okay fine articulated a, a real a moral philosophy of climate change or at least done so I mean if you go in, into sort of some scholarly writing you'll find things but I don't think writers have written about it very well I think that's part of the problem I think a lot of the writing that is done on climate change has a there's an activist undertone sometimes more pronounced than others. But, you know, basically, if you read any popular writing about, you know, whether for magazines or, or books about climate change, it usually follows the same formula, which is these are the disasters that are coming. This is the harm that's been done by the Republican Party and industry. And it's going to be really bad unless we can do X, Y, or Z. And I don't dispute any of that information, but I think it's... But, you know, one thing that David Wallace Wells' piece did so well was that he did away with that last part, that a writer writing about this has a duty to be optimistic and essentially serve as an activist. And I think I think there's a real value to activist writing and we need more of it and we need better activism on this subject. But there's also a value to writing in the service of 
embracing the complexity of the issue. And those are two different motivations. Um, if you're writing to change people's minds about climate change, you want to simplify. You want to give a message. If you want to write about, you know, if you want to find the truth and examine the moral complexity of it, that's a very different task and it creates a diff very different type of work. And I don't think there's been enough of that kind of work about this problem. So what, you know, you and I are talking on a Thursday. The story came out yesterday online and it's going to hit several hundred thousand homes this weekend. I don't know more. What's the Sunday distribution in the New York Times? I don't know. I think a million or two. I don't know. Let's give them a million. Yeah. What's your hope for what this story does for people sitting down and opening up the paper seeing on the cover of the magazine this weekend? What like what do you want those people to be thinking and feeling and, you know, texting their friends after they read this thing if they manage to read it all? Well, I think I have the same feeling I feel with anything I, I write, which is that I hope I feel that once it's out of my hands, I have very limited control of how it's taken or interpreted or used. I feel that each reader brings his or her own subjectivity to it. And so I don't spend too much time really even thinking about that. I mean, I, I hope that people enjoy it. I hope that people engage with it intellectually. And But it doesn't more. feel different to you than other stuff you've written? No. Uh, honestly, I don't, I'm not writing to change the political conversation. I'm not writing to get people to show up at protests. I am writing in the hope of contributing to an ongoing conversation and helping that conversation evolve. And I feel that's part of one's responsibility as a writer to engage um, with the social issues of the day. I, I think there's um, a need for that and, and, and something of a responsibility. But I'm not, you know, if I was writing to affect a direct outcome, that's, you know, we have a term f for that, right? I mean, to... to, to well, I, I guess what I was asking about was an indirect outcome. Like, whether what you wanted people to think about was this role that human nature has played in our inability to take action on this cosmically grave issue facing us, which feels connected to me with like um, our inability to tell good stories about it. Yeah, I think they're related. I mean, I think there's morality in telling stories well. I, I believe in, in that. And I think that there are important truths that we have to acknowledge and that we're not going to be able to, let me say a version of this in the piece, we're not going to be able to understand the predicament we're in until we really reckon with how we got here. And I did an event last night with uh, James Hansen and, and Rafe Pomerantz at the Times, and there was a girl. They're the two like main. The, sorry, the two main characters yeah. in the, of the piece. There was a 12-year-old girl who um, asked a question. She said, you know, where do I have to move to be safe? And of course, Rafe and Jim had very technical answers about that. Um, but but uh, just uh, quickly, wh where do I have to move to be safe? Well, they actually weren't very. Well, Rafe was like, "Ask your parents," but you probably want to be near, you know, fresh water or something like that. And I think Jim was talking about various uh, latitudes. That, you know, but um, <laughs> but 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 I felt like that's the crux of the matter because we're we have all these rationales for why we haven't acted. I don't think many of them will hold water to a future generation who will look back and say, are you kidding me? They knew about this and they didn't act? You know, and even before industry got involved, why, you know, so there's a kind of reckoning that has to happen with our failure. You know, and so much of the writing is focused on how do we fix this? And that's very important. But there's a whole dimension missing, which is how have we failed to fix it this long? And so I, I do see the piece as trying to contribute to that conversation and trying to open up that chapter of writing about this subject because I don't think it's been done adequately and I hope this helps but that's as close as I would get to some kind of motivation yeah. um, but honestly I feel it's the same as writing you know if you ask me what do you hope people who read a, a novel 
what do you, how do you want them to feel? I feel like it's almost, I don't even know how to begin to answer that question. I, I hope that it's val- of value to them, but I also feel like it's out of my control. Okay. So two years, 30,000 words later, what's your short theory for why we failed? Well, man, these are, these questions are coming hard. Um, the short political answer, which is that after a kind of up and down progress over the course of the decade and lots of statements by George H.W. Bush about the need for a major global climate policy and campaigning on the issue, promising he's going to solve it. His chief of staff, John Sununu, former governor of New Hampshire, becomes very skeptical of the science, has a kind of conspiratorial idea of a dark, a sinister kind of cabal of anti-growth forces using the issue to stop capitalism, basically. And he wins a tug of he wins a pure political fight within the White House against chiefly uh, William Riley, who's the head of Bush's EPA, who's very strongly in support of uh, the IPCC process for binding treaty. And he wins out, and industry comes in, and and within the White House, this is something I don't really write about, but uh, 1990 91, Bush's Economic Council turns hard against it. So that's the political answer. But I do think there's- a, I was more interested in like the metaphysical. The metaphysical. And the, yeah. I mean, I think there's a larger answer just about our ability to value the future. And I think I think our view of ourselves is more flattering than it's deserved. And you know, from the beginning of this period, one of the things that was most interesting to me is that about the reporting I did was at the beginning of this period, there were a bunch of social scientists, ec- economists, philosophers really, who got together and said, 1979 or earlier, if this problem is as bad as we think it is, and we know with total certainty, assume the worst, will we as a species act? And approaching it from you know political science perspective, economic perspective, psychology perspective, the answer was almost uniformly no, we won't, because we refuse to, to compromise our present convenience for future even at the cost of future catastrophe. And I think that's something we have to think about and take seriously. I mean, we have to take seriously the Republican Party's you know, denialism. We have to take seriously industry's propaganda and money. And we also have to take seriously this notion that this is a problem that humanity has created, that civilization has created, that we might be constitutionally incapable of fixing in time. And... I'm not persuaded that that's definitely true, but I think it's worth greater examination. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that we really like to talk about. To go from the like uh, most like metaphysical to the personal, like you have a two-year-old kid, I have a three-year-old kid, I have another one on the way. And when I was reading your story, I kept thinking about them and feeling pretty terrible and like pretty dubious for like bringing them into the world like it, it you feel like maybe you are just go, going along going through the motions doing the things that like you plan to do with your life and ignoring the fact that you are for lack of a better word like handing these kids a real shit sandwich yeah and i i of course i think about that too i think a lot of you know probably most parents are you know a lot of people in this country think about that and I don't, but of course we have children. So it's not, you know, we, we think about it. <laughs> right, right. That's what I'm saying. I mean, it, right. they, it, that feels like a version of it too. It's right. like, uh, and well, I'm still going to drink the size coffee exactly. in this cup, but like, ugh. that's scary. Gosh, but yeah, stop right. doing that. And I, I think about it a lot. Um, and yet, you know, have a kid. I live in New Orleans, one of the most threatened cities in the world by climate change. And, you know, I think it's the same way we think about death. Like, uh, we think about it, we worry about it, that we have moments of panic, and then you put it out of your head. And this is a kind of, we're really talking about a civilizational death. When you talk to those people who were pushing for this in 79 and 80 and 81, these moments where, like, it really felt like maybe it could happen and then there was all this momentum the people who were really at the forefront of it not just your two main figures but i assume you talked to dozens of people around them and yeah, um, more than a hundred how do those people feel right now 
it's a combination of a kind of dogged optimism and deep despair and bitterness and anger. There's this scientist named Wallace Broker who is credited with popularizing the term global warming. He published a paper with that in the title in, in 1975. And he since then, he's been sort of prophesying doom. And uh, he I interviewed him at length, and, and he came to this event and, and stood up and said, let me give you some hard reality. And he went into the numbers of what carbon capture will cost, for instance, and the technical difficulty of it just to get to a kind of, just to stabilize emissions. And he's this 86-year-old man, somewhat infirm. He probably knows more about the subject than maybe anyone alive. And he kept saying, we're in grave danger. And it was chilling. But he's been saying that since 1975. So what do you do with that? I, I, that's the thing. I don't think we've, we haven't examined like what, what does that do to us to be confronted with this knowledge? And I think it's a lot easier to talk about technology, to talk about the politics, to talk about industry and all that's important. But I also think there's this, this giant sort of beating heart in the middle that we ignore. Do any of them feel guilt? Not really. They feel, I mean, these are the people who tried. The industry people I speak to are unrepentant about it. They have their own sort of emotional defenses about it. Some, like John Sununu, still think, you know, John Sununu told me it was going to be fine. There's nothing to worry about, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, so I was like, great, I hope you're right. And, um, but, you know, I think that some are more bitter, some are angry, you know, that their advice wasn't listened to, uh, that people didn't act when they could have. That pettiness got in the way, or lack of willpower, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, well, I just wonder. Also, I mean, it's like I have a little bit of experience this, with this. Like, I knew some people were working on um, the Clinton campaign, and they were pretty connected to the responsibility that they had, you know. And they worked as hard as I've ever seen anyone work. They really felt like like the world was in their hands. The fate <laughs> of the world was in their hands, and that they lost, like that they fucking blew it. And I wouldn't had these drinks with people in the wake of that election. There were, it was like a, a grief unlike I've ever experienced. But did they feel guilt? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Tremendous. Like, uh, that's what I mean. Like, okay. like this mix of they blew it. guilt and anger and grief. Yes. It was yeah. personal and they, it was their yeah. responsibility. I wondered reading the story, whether there's any part of that. I mean, these people dedicated their lives to it and it consumed them and consumed their families sometimes and they gave everything but but they lost I, I think to commit to it to this issue with all of yourself as these basically all of these people did you can't succumb to defeatism it's like not in your DNA so they still are in the fight it's unlike the election where it's continuing <laughs> right, right. and it's not technically impossible to stop it in fact there's a very you know there's a strong economic argument there's a technological argument jim hansen lays it all out he has a plan that starts in 2021 which is not coincidentally the year after trump uh first term ends and it's a gradual plan an ambitious plan uh, it involves a carbon tax a lot of nuclear energy and some other controversial things but if enacted it will benefit the economy and it will arrest warming it to you know one and a half degrees Celsius. And that's all good, but I, I also I feel like it's not sufficient. You need a kind of larger moral purpose to get the support of an entire, you know, democracy basically behind it. And uh, that was part of the problem. I mean, I guess to go back briefly to the issue in the in the eighties, it's that th there was all this excitement and all this support, and yet it only took the opposition of the president's chief of staff to crumple it all up. Mm -hmm. So it makes you question, well, how deep was the support? After all, we certainly haven't come closer than that. But, you know, it revealed it to be on a certain level somewhat flimsy. Um, and so there's some failure in, in that, that it wasn't, they weren't able to build, build it more strongly. It does feel like another like paradox of this thing is that you both need to reckon with sort of the worst case scenario and it also 
action relies on extreme optimism. Mm-hmm. Like reading your story, it's a bummer. It's a real downer. And yet the answer at the end is essentially like, I was surprised by the level of optimism at the end or sort of hope at the epilogue of your piece. Does that feel like a fair characterization of where you landed? I think you're entitled to, to feel <laughs> that way. It's not how I necessarily well, would read it. Let me ask you that yeah. in a much better way. How optimistic did you feel at the end of this process? About a climate solution? Not extremely optimistic, but I, I guess I would disagree with this idea that you need optimism. That's an, sort of an American concept. Like the rest of the world, I don't think is particularly hopeful either, but they're taking much greater measures. Uh, well, I mean, I'm generalizing, but you know, if you look in places like Germany, say, which has done a lot, are they very hopeful? I'm not, I don't know that they are. Do they need hope to try to mitigate the disaster? I don't think they do, but it's somehow built into the American way of seeing the world that if there's not this hope of a triumph at the end, then it's not an, enough for us. It's like to kick it, yeah. kick it off the couch for less and than it's hope. Like, it's actually, I think, a very, like, I think it's a very American idea, and I don't think you see that in the rest of the world, but it's taken here as a matter of faith. It's taken for granted. Of course you need hope, otherwise no one's going to act. But I don't, I don't really buy it. I think that's what's powerful about David's piece. I think the reaction indicated that a lot of people were drawn to it, if anything, because of the pessimism, that that clarified the issue to them. So you've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. Yeah. Has it changed the way that you live your life? Yeah. Um, I mean, I have, I do certain weird things to make myself feel better. I mean, I, you know, I hang laundry on the line, things like that. Drives my wife crazy because then the towels are crinkly. I try to bike. You know, I do sort of things that I guess guilty, like liberal guilty, guilty liberals do. You know, I try not to fly, but you know, of course I'm compromised because I'm not going to take a train to New York every time I come here. You know, there's limits and, uh, well, but there's an ethic to it, you know, and that there is a sense of doing the right thing. And so you would think that would extend more. I would think that more people, at least if they really understand the problem, would develop that kind of ethic. And maybe together we would all become more ethical over time. But it's, I don't know. I feel like we don't usually talk about the problem in those terms. But you're able to, I mean, I guess maybe part of what I'm asking is like, as somebody who just spent two years researching this time in history and writing this opus about it, you're still in touch and out of touch with it the way that the rest of us are with with death? <laughs> I mean, I do feel like there's a lot of, um, <clears throat> that there needs to be more honesty about the, the subject. And I think you know, to the other extreme, I think the actions taken by the Republican Party and the oil and gas industry over the years and, and continuing to this day are more than unethical. I think they will be considered very shortly by the general public to be crimes against humanity. And I feel a real sense of moral repugnance about that. So when you hear about Trump today saying we're going to relax uh, fuel economy standards, things like that. I don't have the response that, that that's, oh, that's disgusting. Here's Trump doing another disgusting thing. But I think it's a real moral affront in the same way separating you know children from their families is a moral affront. And so I think we need to be talking about it in those terms more rather than he's trying to screw over the libs or he's trying to help business. I mean, he's I'm sure he's doing that too. But there's a moral horror to it because what we're talking about is hastening um, cataclysm. Especially if part of the conclusion or part of what your piece was about was this sort of human nature to value the short term over the long term and value your short term self-interest over the long term interest of humanity. We're in... we're in unprecedented times for the short-term self-interest. I mean, the whole political operation is about short-term self-interest. You know, that's the like guiding principle of the White House. Right. 
I mean, in pol- American politics is always that way. We have two-year, four-year, six-year terms, and so there's no incentive for a politician to do much of anything where the effect is beyond that time frame. Yeah, I mean, I just think part of what's so thrown into such stark relief by your article is just like the degree to which we're living in short-term self-interest time and how far away being able to value long-term group interest seems to feel at the moment. Yeah, I think that's right. And then it gets into questions of like, well, was it ever any different? Was it different when we were a much more religious society or have, have we always been this way? Um, and uh, will we always be, be this? <laughs> will we be increasingly short term? I mean, there is a sense of like the smash and grab frantic quality to the Trump administration that is certainly seems like it's speeding up. But uh, but I, I feel like all of this is unexamined terrain. I guess I feel like we're at the beginning of, of this conversation. and I'm not exactly sure where it goes. And I feel like my duty in all of this is sort of to ask these questions. And um, but if I knew the answers, I would, you know. One thing that <laughs> this makes me think about is whether there's some contradiction in in these things we're talking about, which is like you are resistant to the idea that it's only our self interest that will get people to uh, wake up and see this for what it is. And also that it has been our self-interest that has stopped us from doing so. And I would say, absolutely, there's a contradiction there. And, and that's something that I wanted to address, that we view everything about this issue through the prism of self-interest and that we're not going to act unless we make it seem immediate and painful. On the other hand, one reason we haven't acted is because we are too self-interested essentially and that we are unwilling to take a a wider view and so I think what one thing I wanted to understand in writing the piece was which one is it and I think we're probably parts of both and and it's a comp you know and I don't think there's a clear answer and and I suppose my hope is that we strive to be our you know our better selves and and hope that we don't fall into these old patterns but I guess I feel like the path to get from self-interest to a larger uh, more encompassing view of our role in this is to understand how we got here and to understand that we've been having these conversations for a long time and to recognize all of that. And perhaps through a, a stronger understanding of the history, we will have greater resolve about the future. Maybe that's a romantic idea, but I think the work of puzzling through that is only beginning. Well, maybe that's the kind of optimism I was picking up on at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that just because we've fallen in this trap before doesn't mean we're doomed in perpetuity to fall for it. Um, and we'll see. <laughs> you know, it's this great, as they say, they've been saying since the 50s, it's this great human experiment. All right. I feel like uh, I have a fiduciary obligation to ask you some writing questions. Yeah, happy to. Not just... <laughs> relieved to. <laughs> Not just meaning of life questions. Um, how do you attack... A thirty, forty thousand word piece. Like you get this offer, which is a hell of an offer to take over the magazine. Like, how do you think about both from like a structural and reporting standpoint, but also just the ambition of that? How do you set about like actually step by step doing it? I felt it had to be a narrative. I wanted to. I felt strongly. I think from from the beginning that it shouldn't break voice the voice of a historical narrative so it should proceed in scenes um, like any kind of popular history basically and but I had to figure out who the characters were and I had to figure out what the scenes were so I had a I created a master outline of everything that happened um, in politics and industry and science over the course of the decade and before it and after it and it's a small group of people that you see over and over again. I mean, more than a handful, but you know, maybe 50 or a hundred people that crop up in all these hearings and meetings and symposia and so on. And so there, it was a bit of a math problem to figure out, well, here are the scenes I have to tell, but I, I only want to tell them through the perspective of people who were there. 
and so that imposed a kind of rigor or logic but i was lucky and you know i was, I was it wouldn't have worked if i hadn't been able to to find people who really were involved at every step of the way james hansen the nasa scientist and rafe pomerantz there was a, another version of the story that had a kind of government scientist slash um, staffer who was involved in in a lot of this stuff throughout the period. And there was another version that had an industry person. Hmm. Um, those last two didn't really have, an, there wasn't enough to sustain them. They just, they just weren't interesting enough characters? No, I mean, they're interesting, very interesting characters. They just... On the industry side, I played with a lot of versions of it, but you know, one person was involved over the first four years in an industry group and then just dropped out of it after they stopped paying attention to the problem, which sort of happened around 83. And you mean I, an industry group that was actually looking at it? Studying it. Yeah, American Petroleum Institute was doing research, and but the you know, they didn't really get anywhere significant and then they dropped it so i spent months trying to figure that out and trying to see if there was a way that i could do it i really wanted there to be an industry component but it just the history doesn't support it um and at least it's not substantial enough to really carry a whole through line you know there was a version of it where i'd have an industry figure at the beginning and an industry figure at the end but again there's sort of there wasn't enough there and how far do you go down the line? I went really far down the line, <laughs> so it was excruciating. Um, months and months of you know, and, and and thousands of words. And early versions of the draft were much longer. And do you know, like, is there this like sinking feeling in your stomach? Like, I'm just, I'm forcing it. I'm forcing yeah. it. Yeah, because basically, what what you have is scenes where nothing actually happens. <laughs> <laughs> But like, is there some part of you that's like, I know this isn't quite working, but I just... Oh, yeah. Huge. I mean, yeah, it was, it was sort of... I was trying to force it uh, for a long time, and it just didn't justify being in there. I had... You know, the one character was someone who was very intensely involved in these... The, the philosophy of climate change from the early period, from, from the late 70s through the decade. And he was part of the circle of people who are asking these big questions. Um, you know, if this is true, are we going to act? Is there any scenario in which we actually take action as a democracy or as a global community? But then part of that was just, it's a purely philosophical conversation. So there's no dramatic interest, really. So there's a vestige of that in the in the epilogue. But they're great story, you know. There are some great stories, but it didn't work. So I ended up reducing it down to these two characters. But it was a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. And then, then within once you have the characters and the scenes, because it's all in the close third person, you have to restrict the action to what that character is experiencing. There's some ways around that, but that restricts you further. And then there's a further restriction of that comes with fact checking, which is basically it's not enough if someone remembers that something happened, if the other people who witnessed it are alive and they remember it differently then the times won't let you use you know pick, can't pick and choose fact checking must have been and they say they, i mean they were it's extraordinarily valuable and they worked like crazy but it did force me to lose a lot of great stuff where someone remembers a great anecdote and i'm sure the person's memory is correct because it's so vivid and specific but then the other person is like well i have no memory of that or and often it's like conversations that didn't seem significant at the time and only seem significant at a 35 year remove. So of course they don't remember, you know, then the, 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 yet the further complication was that most of the people I was speaking to were scientists and a lot were policy wonks and they are just constitutionally terrible at talking about their lives. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, it, I would try to ask them very direct questions about, you know, so when you made this dramatic statement, what did it, what was the reaction in the room? And okay, hold on. I don't think you quite understand the principle of, you know, albedo or um, forcing, radiation forcing, you know, and then on 30 minutes on the science. And I said, okay, I think I got that. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, so how did, the, yeah, room. when you said that, how did your boss respond? Okay, hold on. We got to go back to whatever. Oh, man. And so there was, that kept happening. And 
So that was just excru- excruciating. And so then, then you have documents and archives and and uh, you know papers and all of that and hearings and transcripts. But it was really much. I knew it was going to be difficult, but it was so much more difficult than I thought. And then you know then I started reading a lot of popular histories to see how you know how does David McCullough ha- handle this stuff. And I learned very quickly that they make stuff up and uh, that basically the genre of popular history is full of inference and deduction and sort of leaps of imagination that you can't get away with in the New York Times. Beyond just dialogue. Yeah. Or you'll, yeah. You'll have a verbatim conversation. You'll have a quoted conversation from 1785 between, you know, John Adams and George Washington. And like, yes, I'm sure there's some evidence of a conversation like that happening, but there was no transcript, <laughs> right. you know, or, or it's or you'll have discre- these extraordinary, you know, flowery descriptions of and I don't want to single out McCall. I mean, this is the form I realized of, uh, you know. The, as the light played across his cheek, and sort of, you know, I guess you call them novelistic details. I, you know, wouldn't really appear in any novel, but uh, a good novel. But, um, you know, and okay, maybe they know there was a, that it was a sunny day based on weather records, and maybe they know there was a tree over there, and the sun would come up at this angle. But they're full of, sh- you know, you know, they're full of shit, basically. And and there's a suspension of disbelief that takes place, and so. That, but I realized pretty late in the game I couldn't get away with that. So that really cramped, added an extra level of complexity. So you had lots of like sun dappled cheeks that, that got taken out? No, but it was like, no, I just had to figure out solutions because I couldn't do that. So I had to have something else. And so how do you get details for scenes that are not very well remembered? And there's you have to stick with what you have. But I felt we were able to do it. But it was a serious you know, labor to try to, to figure out how to do it. Were there any points in the process where uh, you were like, oh shit, this is a yeah. huge story? Like, a- Oh yeah. I felt there was, there were, there were places along the way where I felt this is, um, I've lost control. And uh, the first draft was essentially a mastered draft, which I knew was going to be, you know, not close, but I wanted to get the whole story. And, it was comprehensive and it was a mess. And then I think I went through 10 drafts of the piece. Um, so it was an incredible amount of work, but my I have a, a great editor named Claire Gutierrez and she was really dogged and persistent and, and kept up with it throughout and even when I was totally confused. And um, Bill Wasik is also a kind of visionary editor and and Jake Silverstein, the editor of, of the magazine, they all stuck with the vision of the piece as this closed historical narrative followed through the lives of these characters. And they stayed with it even when I was shaken. And that was just an enormously valuable and gratifying professional experience. And, and you, it's what you wish for. It's sort right. of a dream situation. But it also has to be, I mean, I imagine at least in my own cynical and fearful brain that like there's something daunting too about taking on a story of this ambition that you know the magazine is going to ride for and present they like did like a whole movie trailer version of it and stuff like it it was going to be a big deal for the place and it's on this topic about which the people who care about it are incredibly emotional did that part of it enter into your thinking at all like like not only is this a 30,000 word story that's going to take over the magazine but it's on this topic that the people who care about it believe that it doesn't get enough coverage you know it's going to be under this magnifying glass yeah I mean I was aware of all of that but it's not something I spend time thinking about because it, you can only become paralyzed going down that path I really was thinking in terms of how how does the story work? And uh, I was thinking in terms of structure and um, pace and information. You know, it's, it, the mechanics of it was really where I, I, where my brain was, and I knew that I would I would know when it worked, and it didn't work for a really long time. And uh, so that was that part was scary that I wasn't making it work for a while. But we got there ultimately, and and there were some really smart editorial decisions that 
helped saved it um but no i i, I don't i try not to I, I just sort of don't think about that kind of thing in the same way i don't really think about any given you know reader's experience of it um because i don't think you can control for that even if you tried it's uh there's been some criticism of it so you and i are talking like a day after it came out and uh there was a weirdly long and in-depth article in the Atlantic, like shortly thereafter. It made me think that they had gotten a copy of it beforehand. But there, there has been, uh, there's been like a lot of Twitter threading about it. Have you engaged with that stuff? Have you read it? I haven't. I mean, I think there's, I think that criticism reveals an important truth that must be acknowledged, which is that there's no way um, they read the piece before writing it because. It's a 40,000 word piece and, and I can't blame them. It's, you know, it's been out for a few hours. You know, people were writing criticism of it before it was published. So I, I can't really engage with that. It's hard for me to take that seriously. I'm happy to respond to criticism. You know, I, I assume there'll be criticism. There's criticism of anything, you know, I write or I guess anyone writes in a public space especially one as prominent as the new york times magazine um this probably is the most like prominent thing you have written though right I, sorry sorry I don't if i'm know. like sandbagging some other shit <laughs> no i i don't know i guess so uh I, I don't know how you would um rank it or you know or by what metric but perhaps and i you know i'm happy to respond to any specific criticisms on the merit of the criticism i haven't I'm not looking at the Twitter threading, but um, let me I, do a sloppy version of it. For I, you. Yeah, I mean, I stand by everything in the piece. Um, the sloppy version of it is that you let the uh, GOP and, in particular, the oil and gas industries off the hook. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I don't fully understand that criticism because there's no. I don't equivocate about the role that the Republican Party or industry has played since 1989 and i also describe in great detail their engagement with the issue going back to the 1950s so it's that kind of criticism sound i mean i don't feel like i misrepresented anything in the decade of the piece that i wrote about i i looked very hard for industry conspiracies that started before 1989 and i spoke with leading figures in industry at, at places like Exxon and, and American Petroleum Institute and Shell and um, you know a lot of that reporting you don't see in the piece because it's all written in this third person narrative um, so there's nowhere to say I, I spoke to the vice president of American Petroleum Institute or the head of their environmental section for the entire 80s I had a whole version said, of this draft yeah. with someone who was on one of those commissions <laughs> right and you know they weren't model citizens they knew about the science, um, just as the government knew and, and other industries knew, they didn't make an effort to do anything about it. But that is very different from what happens starting in really in 1989, which is a coordinated effort to buy off politicians, buy off scientists, to um, disseminate propaganda and disinformation and do these huge PR campaigns. And that, that story has been well told. And I didn't feel like there was much for me to add to that. The story of what happens starts in the 90s. There are great books about it. And so I didn't feel like I needed to jump on that pile. It's, it's already well established. And, and I acknowledge all of that in the piece. So I think it's maybe threatening to, to folks who have a laser focus on industry and, and see everything through that prism to expand the story at all. And I don't discount, I don't disagree, I don't think with anybody uh, in the sort of activist community or environmental community about the nefariousness or the damage that the Republican Party has done and that oil and gas industry has done. And I think the piece is very clear about that. But I also think that everything historically is accurate in the piece and that there's a whole other story to tell in addition to the political story and in addition to the industry story. So it's, I'm a little, it feels to me often like a, that that criticism is almost like a willful misreading of the piece or that it's, or that people just haven't actually read the piece. They sort of skimmed it or drawn, you know, come with their own assumptions. And, um, but yeah, I can't blame them. It's a really long piece. And, and if they really read the whole thing and responded so fast, it means they basically 
got up in the morning and spent their day reading it and then formulated their responses. But I sort of don't think that's what happened. Well, that might happen. I mean, I think part of it is it's people who care about it a lot. But I, I think it connects to the beginning of the conversation we were having too, which is that it's hard to tell it as a story. And I think that's part of what people were responding to. I read it as a story. Like, it was a piece of, like, popular history. It's entertaining. Like, it's a yarn, you know? And there are characters, and there's tension, and and I, I don't think that that style has been applied to this very often. And it's uncomfortable because there is also a version of the story in which people are acting with such conscious evil that when you know that the idea of telling any other version of the story or even telling it as a story feels like unconscionable yeah I I wouldn't I would say I I guess I would dispute the idea that that's a different version of the story I think it's a different phase of the story sorry that's what I I didn't mean like it's a I just meant like it's a different strain of it yes um yeah and I I think that's an indispensable part of the story um but i also felt that this this is a story that's not known and that's a story that is known and it doesn't discount the later story to if anything i think it strengthens the later story the force of it when you understand how close we came when there was still a good opportunity but yeah i think it's a more interesting question of is it threatening to talk about this issue in an in a narrative in a dramatic narrative basically in a, yeah. in a, through storytelling I can see if you've dedicated your life to the issue and you're an activist. I mean, I guess I'm prepared to accept that that might be threatening. I guess. I, I guess. You know what? To me, it feels like it reflects that there's a fear to that kind of criticism. There's a fear that if you talk about it in this way, then people won't listen to the way I'm talking about it and the issue will die, I guess, is the fear. There's a sense of being threatened that it's politically harmful. And I don't think that fear, I don't know, I don't I don't agree with the logic of that, but I, I have to respect it, of course, it's, fear is fear. Um, but there's also a risk-reward piece of this, which is that there is this thing that humanity is facing in the vast majority of at least people in this country can't be bothered to learn about it or engage with it. Like the stories that we have told about it, for the most part, there are lots of exceptions, but for the most part are boring to most people. So I read your story in part as just like an attempt to make it not boring. Yeah. And I I think the way you put that hides the fact that there's, I think there's a morality to telling human stories and that that actually advances the understanding of the issue and that we understand complicated issues through narrative. And we've done that with other major social crises. I mean, there are great narratives of the Cold War, of civil rights era. Why shouldn't that be applied here? Why is that harmful when it comes to climate change? If anything, I would think it could be beneficial. It opens up the conversation and it puts the matter in a kind of in a human perspective it brings it down to the human perspective and so that's why it puzzles me a little bit but um there's some fear there that's being activated and i'm trying to understand why but if that's important to you if like engaging with the human condition is important to you help me understand how you don't spend any time thinking about what those million people who are going to read this story or at least see the cover of the magazine this weekend are going to do next politically no in any respect like how how is it for you not a thing that you spend time thinking about how this is going to impact the people who read it not just politically just in their daily lives in their ability to in, engage with their long-term collective existence my feeling is that people can and will do with it what they want and if what they want to do with it is re-engage with the issue or you know further the conversation or um, commit to activism they'll do that if they want it to use it as an excuse 
to be cynical or pessimistic, they can do that. If they want to use it as a way of getting attention on the internet, they can do that. And I feel like I don't have any control over that. So it's beyond presumptuous to think that I can dictate the response to a complicated, morally complicated story. And I, I feel like my obligation is just to tell the story as clearly and accurately as I can. And and, and that's hard that's hard enough to do. And to try to find the the human experience within the you know, the politics, the science and everything else. And that that is I feel what is all that any writer can do. And so, yeah, to go beyond that into so what, you know, what kind of actions do I want people to take based on this or how do I want people to feel? So aren't you curious? Yeah, I'm cu- sure I'm curious. I'm very curious. I'm very curious to know how people respond. Um, there are people's responses who matter more to me than others. And I do, you know, I do hope to enter into a larger conversation with the piece, but you know, I'm not writing with the intention of moving people to do one thing or another. I'm writing. I feel like if you reveal something new about the story to people, it creates an opening, and they can do what they want with that opening. All right. So, what are you going to do with the opening? What do you do now? Uh, with a piece. With your work. I'm trying to figure that out. I don't know. I mean, I. Um, I, I, it's too early for me to be able to tell if this is, is this the end of this thing? Is it something I want to pursue further? I mean, I think it connects to issues that I, I write about in all of my work in, in fiction and nonfiction about, you know, our relationship to the natural world, about the way we think about the future, the way we process our fears. And these are, these are sort of things that I tend to write about I've noticed yeah it's a pretty good it's a pretty good vessel for your uh, chosen themes yeah so it it fits my you know so so I'm sure I'll continue to write about things that I find difficult and that I want to understand better and so whether I write more you know I'm a little exhausted with this material (laughs) I don't think I'm going to write chapter two the 90 you know I'm not going (laughs) to do that Um, but I don't know. I'm going to see what happens, and and but it's sort of too early for me to know. I feel like you and I are just going to be apologizing to our kids for a long time. <sighs> yeah. I mean, there's this insane new book, two books by William Volman about this subject that I'm writing about for the, I wrote about for the Atlantic. Um, and it's, it's also a new, it's a new way of taking it on because he's address, he addresses a future reader in a world that is totally unrecognizable where you're basically living in caves, drinking your own urine, the, the oceans have boiled off. And his project is essentially to convince this hypothetical future citizen of the earth that in his position, you know, in the position of anyone living a lot now, he or she of the future will would have acted in exactly the same way. <laughs> which is sort of a version of what I'm trying to get at in the piece. It's like, the, this is human nature. This is how we act. You would have done it too. You would have worried about taking that flight and you would have done it anyway. But that's, I think there's a real opening for new ways of thinking about this issue. And it's exciting to me that people like Woolman and David Wallace-Wells, and I assume many others soon will start to move the conversation. And I think it has to be. It has to be moved forward because we're we have been stuck in a kind of rut, and it will be. It, ha- it you know because the new generations will come up and have new questions about how did how did how did it get here, and I don't think we have the answers yet. Nat, thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Tyler McCloskey. Sponsors this week, readthissummer.com from MailChimp. Go find something to read or uh, find something to listen to, an audiobook at Google Play. Go to g.co slash play slash longform. Get 10 bucks off your first book. Thanks to them. And uh, thanks to Pit Writers, as always, for making the show possible. Thanks very much 
most of all to Nat Rich for coming in uh, in a very short window to talk about a very important story. Uh, if you have not yet read Losing Earth, go find it. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.